so here we are on our last night of the book of Judges. Um, we're going to go through chapters 20 and 21. I certainly have been fascinated uh, by my own personal experience, even after having read through this and listened to it a number of times uh, over the summer and now walking through it together has created a whole host of feelings and experiences. Um, would love to hear kind of where you guys are landing post-judges. Um, maybe over the next two weeks, we're going to take two weeks off. Um, so maybe over the next two weeks, you spend some time ruminating on on some impact that Judges has had, certainly on you know, s- some theological things that we've wrestled with, some biblical interpretation things that we've come around. Um, it's always good to, to wrestle with some of that stuff. And then, uh, as I mentioned, in January, we'll be going through the book of Ruth. Um, and so we'll spend four weeks in the book of Ruth. Great opportunity to invite some folks that maybe are like, ah, I don't know if I want to commit to the whole time. Um, so just come say, hey, come for four weeks, try it out. Uh, we'll walk through the book of Ruth. So that'll be, uh, that'll be a good time. What else was I going to say? Oh, uh, if by chance uh, you're watching at home um, and you want the questions, you can certainly email me. And I can get you the questions. Joy also posts the questions on the website with with uh, the talk, but I I can email them to you, and then I can email you my extensive notes, which were probably very helpful, right, John? You're like, wait, there aren't t- there's nothing here. <laughs> there's nothing here, so I'd be more than happy to get you those questions. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into twenty. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you tonight as your church, seeking your wisdom and your discernment, and uh, we take this time and we carve it out of our days and our weeks and our lives and dedicate it to you as an offering of ourselves, as an opportunity for you to come and to work in us uh, as individuals and in us as a group. And so we ask, uh, Holy Spirit, for your presence not only in this time, but also in our discussion. And we do pray uh, that you would watch over this time and be with, be with us as we seek to grow in our understanding of you and our uh, transformation that is done through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are, chapter 20. Uh, then all the people of Israel came out. So if you remember, uh, last week we have the... Um, the parts, the 12 parts of uh, the female concubine being sent out uh, to all the tribes. And all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled at, uh, as one man or woman to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 uh, men on foot that drew the sword, Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, 
Tell us who, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So we get this first indication that all the people, uh, meaning a large number across the whole spectrum um, of the nation of Israel, has come. Whenever you see this Dan to Beersheba, it is a ge- two geographical markers around the boundaries um, of the nation of Israel. It's like from the west to the east uh, is kind of this category of everyone uh, of the nation of Israel came out and they came together as one unit. Now, it's interesting because when we see this, we're like, okay, now we're finally getting some progress of one unit. And, and the chiefs are there, and they're having this conversation. And the people of Israel ask, how is it that this happened? And it's fascinating as we look at what happened and how it happened and the recounting of what happened. Notice there are some uh, clear modifications and also some clear omissions. The first modification we see is uh, the husband of the woman. Well, they weren't legally married. Remember we talked about husband and wife and concubine and all that. And so we start to see this interesting painting of a picture that elevates the position of this man um, as better off than he was. And he recounts this story. He says, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. Doesn't mention his servant. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, which, that's not true. That's not what they said. They didn't say they wanted to kill him. They said they wanted to have relations with him. And so he's making it sound like he was in this dire position that his life was literally on the line. And they violated my concubine. Again, some significant revisionist history around what exactly happened. Oh, by the way, and now she's dead. So when we come to this, we we come to this reality of selective memory around what actually took place. And how often is it the case that uh, when we uh, maybe have done something wrong, we certainly don't do the best job of retelling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because we don't want to paint, <laughs> we don't want to paint the full picture. Oftentimes we think, well, I can't tell this person the truth because, uh, well, they, they may, may not be able to handle the truth as it represents itself. 
Or is it the case that he wants to present himself as the victim? And if he tells the true story, the full story of what happened, then he will actually look poorly. And so he is trying to save face around what had happened. But again, he's already gone and dismembered this body to create this imagery and this sign to the, to the nation to elicit a very violent response. But we just have to ask ourselves, when we tell the story of someone else, we need to tell the full and honest and accurate story, not just the story that we like to tell. Because the truth matters, and by withholding the truth, we can acknowledge that we are, in fact, lying about the instant that took place. Again, back in 19, we saw this threefold brutal description of what happened to this person, this woman. And here, the man downplays what happened to her. And instead of elevating the voice of the victim, he downplays the voice of the deceased woman and elevates his own voice. And notice... He doesn't take any responsibility, even for the dismembering of her body. The reason he says they committed the abomination, and so I had to do this thing. And so now I need your advice. They're not seeking Yahweh's advice. They're not seeking God's advice. They're seeking the advice among themselves. Verse 12, And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers and sisters, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men, who drew the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all of these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men of war. Men who drew the sword, all of these were men of war. So, we have this fascinating experience because uh, this man, this Levite, draws the people together. He tells this story, and they say, we need to do something about it. And so they gather this contingency of folks who go to the Benjamites, B- Benjaminites, and they say, you have five individuals among you that need to experience justice. Notice what they do I- in saying that they are worthless fellows. Again, as we talked last week, 
the words that we choose to use to describe other people, when it is to devalue them, it is often so that we can do something to them because they're less than full-blooded human beings. And I have to be the first to admit, this is a phrase that I have used way too many times, and it is such a it's such a terrible thing. When we think about this phrase, worthless individual, literally, lacking any value, we should never utter those words of any person. Because what we are saying is, again, they are somehow outside the bounds of God's grace and God's love, and they are somehow not an image bearer of God. They have literally no value. But when we say this, we, we allow ourselves to, to be convinced that we can do whatever we want to these people because they are without value. So the nation of Israel realizes that something terrible has happened and they need to bring about justice. And so they go to the Benjamites, the Benjaminites, and, and rather than saying, yes, you are correct, we need, to, we need to bring justice to the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin doubles down. They say, oh no, you are not going to be able to protect, to come after these five people. These are our people. Well, you know what these people did. Yes, and we will defend them to death. And I know we have, this, we have such a hard time with this because the people of Israel want to do what is right in God's eyes, and so they want to bring about righteous justice. And here, a whole tribe of people, rather than acknowledging, yes, we need to bring about justice, they circle the wagons to protect the perpetrators of violence in their midst. And it's easy for us to say, well, well that happens out there, but that doesn't happen just out there. Because we know for a fact that far too many times to count and far too close to certainly my home is the reality that when sexual violence happens within the church and it's called to attention, the people at the top circle the wagons to protect the perpetrator and to alienate the victim. I've been listening to this terrible podcast about the litany of sexual violence at Liberty University. And it is, it is mind-boggling. And then you read the Bible and you're like, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Well, they were just misled. Well, we need to extend grace to, to these perpetrators of violence. Sympathy. We need to express grace 
to repentant followers of Jesus Christ and those who have repented, yes, that is accurate. But when it is at the expense of the larger whole and at the expense of the victim, we are not doing it right. And what happens is extremely costly. So rather than the tribe of Benjamin acknowledging that that they have five individuals who have committed this horrendous crime and they need to be brought to justice, they circle the wagons to defend them. Well, what will people think of us? How will we be labeled? If somebody finds out that this happened in our midst, what will we look like? Who cares? Well, people will say things about our body. Yeah. Because again, this didn't just happen. This didn't just happen overnight. The nation of Israel has allowed themselves to be infected and perverted by the canonization of their allegiance to who they are to be as followers of Yahweh. And no one has said anything. The judges have stepped up at times and tried to make this thing happen, and yet it continues to fester and devolve and create this environment where sin reigns supreme, and rather than dealing with the sin in our midst, we protect the sinner at the expense of other people. And this picture that we see in Judges is the cost of that. And and rather than the church and the people of God being a place of refuge and justice, they become a safe haven for those who are perpetuating violence. This individual today, in this recent episode, says, it wasn't that I was attacked by these individuals, but then I was attacked again by the university and the people that were supposed to protect me. These people that espouse to be champions of Christ, when it is brought to their attention that there has been a sexual assault, rather than dealing with it, they protect the abuser. And what happens is further devastation. Now, we can't miss the irony in verse 16 that, again, we have these left-handed people. The tribe of Benjamin means tribe of right hand. (laughs) And yet we have this fascinating experience of 700 left-handed 
warriors. And if we skip forward to Saul, we get into the reality that Saul has another left-handed warrior in his midst who is also a person from the tribe of Benjamin. The people of, people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel. Now notice there's 400,000 warriors from the nation of Israel and around 26,700. I mean, this is a bit of an imbalance. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, let's just take a quick sidebar here and see how God's name appears in so many different ways. So, Bethel, when it's broken down, is house of God. El is a generic reference to God. So, we have house of God, and they inquired of God, which is Elohim, and the Lord, which is Yahweh, speaks to them. So don't miss out on that little nuance, which again, sidebar, Bethlehem is Beit Lechem, which is house of bread. Merry Christmas. So literally, the bread of life is born in the house of bread. I mean, if that isn't funny, I don't know what is. That has nothing to do with this text. You're welcome. But what sticks out here? They go to God. God has seemingly been not in the picture, and yet God has been the focus and the main character of this the whole time. And so finally, they seem to be getting it right. They go to this house of God to inquire of God. What are we supposed to do? And again, remember we had this double intro. Now we have this double conclusion when they're about to go into the promised land, what do they do? Inquire of the Lord. And who does he say who should go first? Hint, we just read it. It's Judah. And so at the end of the book, Judah is being, they're asking God who should go first. And he says, Judah. It's like this perfect bracket thing that's going on here. Like, I don't care about the grammar sandwich. And then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out to Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the, people, uh, the men of Israel took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So first battle, they go out. They've gone to God. They have had no time for God. Literally zero time for God. They have rejected God by all of their actions and behaviors. They're about to go into battle, and they're like, oh, by the way, where are you at again? Oh, yeah, over there. Should we do this? God seems to say yes. They go up. 
22,000. So basically the equivalent number almost of the, the whole tribe of Benjamin wipes out that many of the Israelites. And they go home crying. Weeping, which I would think that would be a good response. Lamenting to God. And they say again, should we do this? And the Lord seems to say to them, yes, go do it again. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day. And they destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So they seem to get this inclination that they should go out and fight again. They go out and they fight again, and they lose 18,000 more individuals. So now we are up to 40,000 people that have been killed. (laughs) We can't miss that. So many times when we're reading the Bible, we just, we're like callous, like, oh yeah, by the way, a few thousand people were were killed. Yeah, okay, let's just keep reading. No, 40,000 people were killed. And that's just on the Israelite, the Israeli, the Israel side. Never sure how to say that quite right. So now this time, they all get together. And they go up to Bethel again, and they cry out to God again. But notice what they do. They fast, and they offer burnt offerings, and they offer peace offerings before the Lord. They're like, okay, so we started out, and we just prayed about it. And 22,000 people died. And so then we came back, and we lamented, and we prayed about it. And we went back. And 18,000 people died. So something's not working. So maybe if we do those things that we haven't been doing any other time of the year, you know, like offering sacrifices and doing those types of things, maybe if we do what God has told us we're supposed to do, then we will actually have success. And then we get this little sidebar about Phineas the son of Eleazar, and the fact that the, oh, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant is here. The Ark of the Covenant should not be here. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be safe in the tabernacle. But it's like their little magic uh, talisman. They're like little uh, rabbit's foot. Well, remember that one time that we used the Ark of the Covenant and God brought us victory? Why don't you go get the Ark, bring it down here, and then maybe God will actually listen to us and provide us with victory. And as we're reading, we're like, oh, the Ark of the Covenant was there. Cool. Not cool. (laughs) 
Not cool at all. The ark is being used in an inappropriate way. You're like, well, why isn't God just killing them? Great question. So God says, yeah, go ahead. Go up tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. So Israel sent men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah at other t- as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at first. This is like how the Vikings felt last Thursday. They're like, we're routing them. We can quit. Ha, that's what you thought. Uh, But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Merageba. And there uh, came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush, in the main ambush, was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and those who came up out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of the men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get on. And 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and remained at the rock of Rimon for months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword the city, men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So, 
they go out for this third battle. And by golly, this strategy is very detailed, and it works. Woohoo! We have victory. We kill all these people. We do have a math problem, if you didn't notice. <laughs> we do have a math problem, but we can figure that out later. And they surmise that the Lord has defeated uh, the Benjaminites. What's fascinating around this is we can often think and believe that God becomes like the old lock we had on our shed at 404 East 15th Street. The combination was 22, then you turn two turns to the right, 24, one turn to the left, 6, bada-bing, let's get the bikes. That's actually the combination, in case you're wondering. I don't know if the shed's still there, but if it is, that's the combo. You can have whatever you want. That, that if we do this, and we ask in this way, and then we do this thing, and then, woohoo, we unlock God's goodness and blessing, and God does what we want him to do. That's what it says, right? They're having no victory. And then they make sacrifices. And voila, victory. Did we mention they had 400,000 men? And it's fascinating because when we, when we pray about something and it happens, we're like, ha! I prayed about this thing and it happened, therefore God wanted it to happen. Are we sure about that? Because how often is it the case that when we go to God, we think that we're going to God in the right order and fashion to get the thing that we want? It's like, I'm having this problem, and, and I read my Bible five days in a row, and then I didn't eat lunch on Friday, I was fasting. I actually forgot to bring it to work, and I didn't want to go buy lunch. But I was fasting to the Lord, and then I asked. I got up early on Saturday morning, and I sat in silence for 30 minutes. And then on Sunday, God answered my prayer. Woo! That's how it works. And so the next time we need God to answer our prayer to provide us with something, we go through the same format, and maybe it works again. We're like, I have God figured out. No, <laughs> no, no. Because when we go, when we encounter this concept of prayer, it's not about unlocking some secret code to this bounty of goods. It's about being in this communal relationship where I, I know if God is in this thing that I'm about to ask for. God is not Santa Claus. We used to tell this story. I've maybe said it before. Wyatt would ask when he was younger, he'd be like, I want a snowmobile. We'd say, Santa doesn't bring internal combustion engines. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll ask for something else. 
when we go to God in prayer, it's not to get stuff that we want. It's to be transformed in this relationship. And it's fascinating that these people have had no time for God. We've seen just mass chaos. They aren't even living the way they're supposed to. They've completely abandoned the covenant that they have with God. And yet when they need God to provide them with something, they go to him and they do the steps. And God is like, okay. And we're challenged by this, I understand. Because the text says, in verse 35, the Lord defeated the Benjamin, uh, defeated Benjamin. Yes. Remember when Gideon only had 300 people? And the reason why Gideon had so few people is because God wanted to prove that he was the victor and that, that we've been talking about the fact that God is the main character of this whole thing called the Bible. If you have 400,000 warriors and you beat 27,000 warriors, you don't get bonus points. Oh, yeah, and God gave us the victory. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Because, oh, sidebar, not sidebar, flashback, they don't kill the ben- all the Benjaminites. They leave 600. They're like, oh, we feel so bad for these guys. Okay. So what about the women and children that the Israelites go in and burn to death? Did they feel bad for them? No. They go in and they destroy their towns, their people, their animals, and they save 600 men. How twisted is this? They're supposed to be bringing justice, and they're like, oh yeah, but we'll let those guys go. They kill all of the women, all of the children. No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. They had already made this vow. Okay? If, if we've missed it, the Israelites love to make obscene rash vows to God well before anything else happens. Because if the plan was to kill all of them, why would they make the vow about giving wives to the Benjaminites that they're going to go kill? But they make the vow before they go kill them. And then they're like, oh, there's 600 left and we made this vow. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Why are they weeping bitterly? Oh, we made a stupid vow to God? Probably. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people arose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, 
which of the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? Literally, what are they doing? They're blaming God for what is happening. They're saying, we can't let this happen. We can't let a tribe of Israel be cut out of this lineage. Well, then what was all the killing of the 20-some thousand people? Are they having killer's remorse in battle? I don't know. It's, it's mind-boggling. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and by the way, one tribe didn't come up when we asked them to come up. So we have this solution. And they said, what one is there for the tribes of Israel that they did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among them, among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, 400 young virgins who had not known a man, by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at the time, and they gave them the women who, whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But there were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. As if it couldn't get any worse. They have made these ridiculous vows, and so they devise this plan because they'd made these double vows that if somebody doesn't come up with them at Mizpah, then those people would be under punishment. So they go into this city, and they kill everyone in the city. 10,000 brave men go into this city and they kill every single person except 400 young virgins. We cannot miss this. The people of Israel have decided to protect those who have harbored these perpetrators of violence. There was five of them. Now they go in and they wipe out all of these people, kill them for no reason other than they feel bad for these individuals over here who have perpetuated all of this violence. And so they steal 400 young ladies. Again, we thought one was bad. Now they've stolen 400 to give to these individuals who have allowed and perpetuated evil. They are bringing evil to evil. 
And then they feel bad because they're like, oh, we only brought you 400. They have literally killed and abducted 400 of their own people. And then they blame God. What shall we do for the wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. Why? (laughs) That a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Oh, because we would look bad. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards. Now they are colluding with the people, the perpetuators of violence. And watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come up out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his own tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The Benjaminites protect five men who should have been brought to justice for their sexual violence. The larger tribe of the nation of Israel decides to kill them, but then feels bad about killing them, and so they go and kill their wives and their kids. And then they feel bad for these individuals And so they go and kill these other people. They take 400 of their children. Oh, not enough. So they devise a scheme with these people, these perpetrators of violence and evil, so that they can abduct. So that they can literally come in and kidnap at a religious festival. 200 young girls. Like, we can't miss this. When the world looks at the church and says, wow. (laughs) The nation was convinced that they had God under control and they could do whatever they wanted. And yet they do evil on top of evil on top of evil. And they use their own religious festival to honor and worship God 
as a trap so that 200 young girls could be stolen from their families and given to these perpetrators of violence. And if this doesn't have us on our knees saying, my God, who are you? Why are you not doing something? Why are the people of God allowing this to happen? The people of God are supposed to be different. But as we have seen throughout the whole book of Judges, the people were unable to drive out the foreigners, the Canaanites, and so they allowed themselves to be polluted over time, a little by little by little, to where you look at these people and you say, they're no different than the world. And we have to ask ourselves, when the world looks at us, do they say, you're no different than the rest of the world? Or do they say, wow, the people who identify as followers of Jesus Christ are completely different. Because the story of Judges is the story of individuals who think they can control God and they don't have to remain in covenant relationship and they can just dabble a little bit in the world and before you know it, they are so transformed by the world that they're perpetuating violence against young girls of their own. Their own kids they're killing their own people. And we want to talk about we want to talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of these all of these big other stories and the evil that exists within the nation of Israel is mind-boggling. And it's amazing that God doesn't come in and just wipe them out. And we're reminded of God's amazing, abundant, steadfast love and grace. That even in the midst of all of this, God is patiently waiting for his people to return. You may go to your groups.